It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hello, and welcome to another adventure in the British countryside with the BBC Countryfile magazine podcast. It's your chance for an escape into the wilds, have interesting conversations with rural folk, and enjoy some entertaining wildlife encounters. My name is Fergus Collins, and I'll be your host. In this episode, I head off at the crack of dawn into the Brecon Beacons, just north of my home in Abergavenny, to meet rural commentator Rob York. Rob describes himself as a hunter-naturalist, and he spends a lot of his time talking about and unpicking the tensions and conflicts that sometimes divide the modern countryside. So I wanted to hear his fresh and often challenging ideas about farming, shooting, rewilding, and many other subjects. So join me for breakfast in the Black Mountains and a very entertaining chat. So this is the Gare, the uh, an ancient hill fort. It is. What do you know about it? I know very little about it, except that I know it's extremely old and the ramparts are filled with ancient warriors uh, every time I come up here. But I've got to say, I'm not a historian. I haven't, done the, I haven't done the deep research. I think my 14-year-old probably knows a little more about it. Um, but having it opposite, opposite where we live is, is an absolute joy. Yeah, it's kind of, um, it's a little plateau on top with bracken and then there's these deep ramparts running around the side and then you've got views. Well, what can we see in the distance? Is that the Mulvans in the distance over there? Th- yes, yes, it is. I mean, it's, yeah. it has got the 360. You can see the seven estuary sometimes. So yeah. as you say, Fergus, you've got the Mulvans out to the east and then to the south you can see the estuary. Mm. We can see the whole of Herefordshire. Yeah. The sort of gentle farmland of Herefordshire. And then we've got the sort of rough hills of Black Mountains, which is your home. Yeah. Uh, which you roam and explore and talk about a lot. And so what, what, what do you love about these hills here? But, um, I mean, for, for sort of 
wildlife and what would you like to see up here? There's a lot of cuckoos up here already. What would I like? Yeah, that's a good I mean, point. Are you asking me? I mean, yeah, your I said, personal but, favourites and, and the things that you really, you know, when you go out on a particularly spring walks, but any time of year. But you, know, you mentioned cuckoos; they're here for about sort of six weeks or so, aren't they? And they, yeah. they bring life to these hills in a, in a sure. very unusual way. I mean, the skylarks do that in kind of February. Mm. I mean, I'm drawn to the uplands, but maybe that I'm drawn to the uplands because because of the wildness, and they are. You know, my other job is, you know, working for a water company laying pipes across, you know, Bedfordshire and Buckinghamshire. So I'm quite lucky to get that contrast, you know, between yeah, the lowlands. The flat. And, and, and it, it's... it's it flat is, and tame. It is very tame. You're absolutely right. Yeah, every... every if, but it has to be tame. Well, it doesn't have to be tame, but if you want to farm it, yeah. there's, there's much more productive farming going on down there. And, you know, you have to tame... Uh, let's say the hedges to a certain extent, so that they don't become a you know, line of trees that overshadow the crops, etc. But I would argue there might be more room. And you know, you've said you know, you know, we can have more habitat even in the lowlands. But I think I love the uplands uh, because of you know, the, it's definitely more untamed. Um, well, we talked about you talked about an urban population, but there's no one up here. No, so we're very, you know... It's a Friday in mid-July, high summer, and there is no-one up here. But that's because it's not easy to get here. The access, the tiny roads, there's no car parking, no facilities, there's no tea room, Mm. you know, apparently... And and we both got... Well, I certainly got wheezy on the walk up here. Yeah, it's quite... Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it is quite energetic to get up here. But, but, um, But I love the fungus up here. There's some really, you know, there's some amazing funguses you come across... Uh, I love the wood wasps that come out of the trees. I love the birds. I have a, you know, I, I really love, you know, the birds, you know, whether there it's... There are some wild things red... up here. Yeah. Uh, if, and yeah. The, I mean, a lot, see... There is a lot that's un, undiscovered. I mean, I'm... Sure. I mean, to see the hen harrier, uh, a hen harrier which was up on the hills, which is maybe just a young immature passing through, you know, it was great to see it. But to see it alongside the red grouse uh, earlier on and then to see the stone chats, the wind chats... Uh, and to come across, ah, oh, I loved it. The other day I came across a tree pipit's nest, six eggs, and the only way I found that was that I was ranging across this grass field and I almost stepped on it. And that's the only way that sometimes you see nature is that you have to kind of almost brush up against it. Mm. And then I think there's a lot more nature right under our noses and we need to just spend a bit more time, you know. Well, I think lockdown had that effect on me and lots of other people that instead of jumping in a car and going somewhere glamorous, more glamorous than my local lanes and fields. Yeah. I studied every hedge every single day. I think the Black Mountains, from what I've read, from what you've written, they illustrate a lot of the, the issues that you talk about. Land use. What are, what, are you, what, what are you interested in? In the you know, Rather than me tell you what you're interested yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I'm interested in... Rob is putting together a stove so we can have yes. socially distanced breakfast up on this hill fort yeah so i'm i'm, I'm interested in landscape i'm interested in food because we're going to have breakfast i'm interested in birds wildlife some of the tensions in the countryside are distilled within places like the black mountains but you know the black mountains you know it is part of the brecon beacons national park but it's very much the quiet the dark side whereas the honey pot the bright side the brecon beacons penavan is a completely different world and that's what fascinates me, I think, about the whole countryside, is especially in the UK, it's so diverse. You know, parts of these uplands are like, you know, parts of Austria uh, and Romania, and then other parts of lowland 
um, England or even parts of Scotland are more like northern France. It's like diversity. It's uh, interesting. You think, what, do you, sort of alpine or just the, the sort of undeveloped element of, like, Romania has this sense of still being medieval. So you think there's element of that in yeah, definitely. Like mountains here? Yeah, definitely. Because when you walk through these woods uh, and, you, and, you, and you look up at the oak trees and you think, wow, that's an ancient oak tree. And then you suddenly realise, hang on, there's a stone wall underneath it covered in moss. So this has been farmed... 150 years ago. Hang on, there were no trees here. This was... And odd enough... Well, not odd enough. I was lucky enough to go with a family to walk with donkeys through Transylvania, and I couldn't help but keep correlating parts of what I was seeing there in Transylvania, northern Romania, with people struggling to do subsistence agriculture and thinking that's exactly what the Black Mountains was like 100, 150 years ago. So that kind of blew my mind. But not today. Um, there's still a bit of subsistence. So it feels like there's a bit of subsistence farming up here. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I mean, <laughs> without being rude. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, we could, we could. Well, no, I mean, let's. Without being rude, but let's let's let the cat out of the bag. You know, farming is hard work wherever you are, even in the lowlands, because you've got to knock back nature in order to create food. If you've got an organic farm. You still need to knock back nature. Uh, well, that's interesting turn of phrase, knock back nature, this yeah. sense of being in conflict with nature. Sure. Uh, which I think a lot of people would like to see farming more in harmony with nature. Absolutely, but that's an oxymoron. <laughs> this is a dog sniffing the, uh, the wind jammer. Yeah, Willow. Willow, hello Willow. Willow, the wild of the hills. But yeah, very lovely polite, Labrador, but go away, go on. But, um, but just very interested in fluffy wind jammers. Get off, get off. There we are. Good girl. We've got some interesting sheep poo to go and sniff. Um, so, I mean, so, yes, you're talking about um, knocking back nature. So there's this sort of... Um, well, I mean, that's what farming is. In order to produce food, um, I mean, there's lots of room for other, other land uses as well. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, we could talk about wilding and wilder farming and rewilding. And Well, I hope we do, because I think that's kind of quite an, yeah. an topic that... It's all related, yeah. yeah. I mean, we can't talk about, you know, farming or food production without talking about other land uses, and then you can't talk about the other land uses like forestry uh, and maybe, you know, some of the kind of recreation... Well, we're, you're uh, starting from a perspective of nature needs to be tackled. Uh, and sort of managed if you're going to have food, cheap well, food. Yeah, if we're talking about food, any farmer has to compete with nature in order to produce food. So if you're going to, um, you know, if you go back 200 years in the Black Mountains, I would argue that it was pretty intensively farmed. Not intensification using chemicals and stuff like that, lots of machinery, but intensive in the... One family would have 10 acres, and you couldn't afford to have nice scrubby areas and nice big white hedges and, you know, lots of, lots of wildlife. You would have a wildlife which would be coexisting with your, subs, with, you know, with your subsistence farming, but you'd be scratching a living. You'd probably try and get three crops out of one field in one year. Right, and, and, but and, you'd, you'd sort of be... Things, that, things like linnets and yellowhammers and that sort of thing would be... The stuff that's always coexisted with yeah. traditional farming, conventional farming in Britain, yeah. but has suffered a bit more in recent decades. And that's because of efficiency. So, you know, way back then, you'd be hand-cutting hand the, uh, 
This dog so wants to you be know, part weak. of this conversation. I, know. I don't know why. She normally just goes and <laughs> enjoys herself. I think she can um, smell the bacon. Yeah. <laughs> come here, you. Uh, it's, there we go. Uh, but, uh, you well, come and keep me company. Okay, so, you know, farmland birds, as you say, like yellow hammers, would be doing very well because of the inefficiency of, of the farming. There'd be lots of waste. There'd yeah. be lots, exactly. Hand cut and then, and then there'd be... And, Enjoying and stubble, stubble, yeah. which is yeah. which is a thing of the past. I mean, it's not something you'd see around here anyway. But um. well, you would, you see, two hundred years ago, there would be stubble because there'd be, uh, you know, there'd be much, much more arable in these uplands. So in that deep forestry over there, you'd yeah. have barley, you'd have, you know, potatoes. So they were bringing off an arable crop. So it wasn't all sheep farming. Here. No, no, because it is all sheep farming today. Absolutely, much. yeah, because because. And that's across the whole world. As farming becomes more efficient, it, it tends to focus on the monocrop. Well, not the monocrops, but the kind of livestock that work well on that land. And then efficiencies hone it down to one particular type of breed that works well there. Um, I love this word, hetero, heterogeneity, diversity. Um, but as we've become more efficient, we've lost that resilience, which is found within diversity. Now, that's, that's not, I think, to be aggressive towards farmers because that's where policy has driven. You know, after the war, the whole push for food self-sufficiency changed agriculture within the UK enormously, hugely. I mean, I, I'm trying to work out what you mean by resilience in that. Oh, resilience in that... Um, by, and lack of resilience. Yeah, yeah, I mean... The heterogeneity, as yeah, you said. Yeah, having the heterogeneity allows... allows That's why, actually, ecosystems, natural ecosystems can help farming because disease can't spread straight through, you know, um, the winter wheat. If you've got huge plains of winter wheat and you get rust, the fungus rust, then, you know, you have, have to use pesticides to knock it back. If you've got smaller, uh, diverse, uh, different say, cropping systems, you're not going to get the disease hitting the whole, the whole output in one go. You're going to have the ability um, for soils, and, the, and we still don't know much about soil. We think we do, and we know how important it is, but there was some new research that said the porosity of the soil is based on the kind of biotic the biological activity rather than the actual structure of the soils and stuff like that. So how much actual living organic matter interacting with each other. Yeah. And we've lost that, again, due to farming practices becoming more efficient. Maybe let's talk a bit more specifically about the Black Mountains. Yeah. They obviously illustrate quite a few of the... (coughs) Excuse me, I'm wheezy after that climb up the hill. Uh, um, Some of the tensions... That, that word tension used, which I think um, yeah. does sum up quite a lot of the, uh, the burner's light. It is. Um, now, it could make a bit of a roar. It could. It's, it's one of these kind of petrol burners that they use in small tents when they're not supposed to in the Arctic because it's the only thing that works at minus 50. Right, OK. Uh, so it's between my legs, and hopefully I can get the roar going when it's much safer and then we can get the bacon on. But, um, I mean... I mean, let's help me describe the, yeah. the Black Mountains, because for people who've never been here, they're quite extraordinary. It's a sort of... How would you... Physically... I would, yeah, I mean, I, I would describe it as a kind of... Um, and I've, I've lived up in the, in the west of Scotland and north-west 
So I'm just watching my burner. I don't want it to explode, but then I want to get the timing right. Right there, we are. See, we're just going to get the gas, the petrol. <laughs> oh, I guess I distracted myself. Right, so having lived in uh, northwest Wales or kind of mid Wales and up on the west coast of Scotland, I love the Black Mountains because it's, it's surrounded by what I would call tame farmland. And then suddenly you have this bulk, this great lump, this presence. Um, which is which is it's it's slightly untamed. People don't find it very attractive to look at because it says bulk. It's bleak. On the Com- tops, it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, and I would argue that yes, on the tops. But I think some people might fear it. The name doesn't help. The Black Mountains. Mm. Obviously, the other end of the Brecon Beacons, you've got the Black Mountain near uh, you know, yeah, Ask Reservoir, confusing, yeah. uh, which is a different, very different place. And I remember going there, and I found it more. You know, you, you've got more rocks there. Here, you've just got lots of lots of uh, bracken. Uh, you've got heather, lovely remnants of heather up on the hilltops, and and there's a lot of history that goes with the Black Mountains when it comes to land use. And some of it's quite controversial because 150 years ago, the first you know first place in the UK people would come to shoot uh, kind of driven red grouse would be here. You'd come straight from London in your horse and cart. And you come to the Brecon Beacons. There are there are remnants of grouse butts. Yeah. Uh, are there still grouse shoots up on the? No, there's no grouse shoots. But the Welsh government has been very keen to, to kind of conserve the habitat. Um, of there the are river. a few grouse up there. Oh, there's still grouse. Yeah. yeah. Kind of. It was great out, out with the kids, and suddenly there's this old there's old this old cock grouse. Go back, go back, go back, go back. Went out, and one of my kids said, "Hey, Dad, look, look." And then you could suddenly see the hen, the hen grouse, flapping its wings. And the dog's being drawn towards it. And then we suddenly... I didn't see them, but my son did. He suddenly saw the grouse chicks right at his uh, feet. Lovely. Really yeah. special minute. Yeah. Um, a really special moment. And so you've got the grouse hanging on in these heather remnants. Uh, and then you've got some really rare moths. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. Sylvian or something like. Silurian moth. Oh, Only yes. found... Yeah. In the Black Mountains, because it's it's sort of it is a big lump, but there are lots of these discrete valleys yeah. running up yeah. into it. Which, yeah. I mean, I'm not selling it very well by saying it's a great big lump. Yeah, of course, well, it's but, got. But, but there, there's something. There's the contrast between these sort of slender wooded valleys with their trout rivers, mm. and then you've yeah. got this sort of bolt, as you say, that kind of stark, eerie. Because you can walk for miles up there, and the peaks never seem to get closer, sure. and um, sure. and it's that. It's quite monoculture. When I say monoculture, th- th- yeah, th- there's that purple, purple moorgrass yeah. seems to dominate up there rather than the heather that you'd expect. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And why is that? Because that, yeah. that's not a sort of... I mean, would it, would it, was, it, was it always there? Because people talk about purple moorgrass as sort of melina. Dom- yes, and also kind of bracken. A lot of people, you know, obviously bracken's been oh, here... Oh, we're surrounded by bracken. Yeah, generations. Here. What was here beforehand? I, I, I mean, I'm... I'm not an archaeologist. I know that there will be more trees and scrub. Are we going to go back 5,000 years ago before agriculture started in the UK? I can only imagine, you know, you know, 5,000 years ago, there'd be a lot, there would be a lot more, um, you know, vegetation, which would be small on, stunted on the top, kind of trees, think, even yeah. on the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think there probably would have been heather in the open bits as well. Where, you know, where, 
But so these are all glacial valleys. Are well, they? not oh, all of them. Right. Again, someone just told me that because I thought when I was walking across one of the fields just below our house, wow, this is where, this is where the ice scraped the rock. I can see the score marks. And then this arc. This archaeological guy said, no, no, hang on. No glaciers apparently ever came down your valley. They came down the one next door. Yeah. And um, then I worked out that was actually a farmer's plough, which had probably <laughs> hundreds of years ago scored across the rock. So I still don't think we know everything yeah. when we think... So that's a do. river valley. I mean, that's a river-carved valley rather than a glacial valley. Is that... Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes, yeah. Um, but I... I'm, I'm no expert on it. All I do is interpret stuff that I see, you know, day in, day out when I'm walking, and I try and ask people who might know other stuff about it. Um, and I think the past, I think it's important to try and understand the past as to the landscape you see now, but at the same time not get too wound up as, as to how it should be when, yeah. of course, everything is, everything is kind of transient. The countryside has always been transient, you know vegetation growth, farming practices, land use practices. So, so you're saying that uh, a lot of fetishising of... Yeah. Fetishising is the wrong word. No, I think it's, but it, but, um, it's quite a good word, I'm afraid. But, it, but, this. but this sort of golden period of when there was tonnes of wildlife and we farmed in harmony, that never really existed. No, I, it didn't exist. I uh, mean, yeah, we've, I, I, and I'm afraid I agree with you that, that word fetishizing, you know, are we trying to... I remember working for the National Trust uh, as a young child surveyor, and there was a bit of an argument, you know, are we preserving the countryside or are we conserving it? Are we trying to stick it in aspic and, yeah. and, and, and hold it at a certain age? I got my... A lot of the... Uh, a lot of the message... And the, um, that's the roar of this stove. Um, which is very impressive for a tiny little state that's got probably heard in the Malverns. Um that people who love wildlife, spend a lot of time watching wildlife, writing about it um, particularly, you know, I'm nearly 50, I've seen a lot of change in my life uh, there's also a sense of bitter loss and even though you can understand why there's that loss. It's still a sense of... We, we, and we tend to focus on loss more than the gains, because there have been lots of gains. Um, but essentially, the loss of wildflower meadows, I think, is something that you, you kind of ache for. Sure. Um, when you see a great wildflower meadow, you think that is just 3% of what there once was. Yeah, but I would argue that let's forget the kind of flower meadows. Let's just say the word meadows undisturbed grassy meadows full of kind of butterflies you know yeah. let's not get too obsessed by flowers and of course there has been the recent uh i was going to say intra-guild ecologist uh, argument about someone i think in scotland one of the kind of councils who you know reseeded a roundabout with the wrong type of non-native flowers oh, yes. and everyone said hang on well uh, anyway, any flower is good for pollinators let's not let's not get too fussy and we could talk about that with the forestry as well but but um and where do you our, where do you stand are you kind of live and let live or are you well natives no, all the time? I, yeah but i hang on i'm not going to you're, you're, gonna, you're doing a great interview there, Fergus. I like it. But I want to try and finish that you're not first gonna, You're not going to nail your colours to a mask. No, no, I will do, but I want to come to that. I want to I finish the bit about why we're feeling like lost. Crossbills. 
Can you hear those crossbills? Yeah, that's a crossbill. I haven't heard a crossbill yeah. since I moved from Adamanis. But I want to go back a little bit, and why are we feeling that loss? And and I, I'm still obsessed by, and I know I bang on about it. Uh, and actually, um, a journalist rang me up because he heard me talking about it at a rewilding talk about 1861, and that's when the UK became more urban than rural. You know, more people lived in cities. So for generations, we've urbanised. Now that this is not about urban and rural, but it's about the urbanisation of the UK, and we've lost that connection. A lot of people have moved into cities and then come from cities to move back into the countryside. And, and that sense of loss, that shifting baseline syndrome of what we perceive the countryside to be and what it isn't now and what it had been, is, is, it's, it's, I would say, heightened. And this is, you know, my own interpretation. It's, it's maybe heightened because we have become disconnected not just to nature but to food because the two are connected you know if you don't know where your food comes from you're not really understanding the countryside about everything that lives in it and and this is coming back to the first thing we talked about was in order to have your food you have to knock back nature so you have to understand the dynamic processes of ecosystems and wildlife and we've lost that so but some some of the um knocking back has obviously done a, you know, so yeah. much deep and lasting absolutely. absolutely. I'm not going to say damage yet, but there's no doubt that... I mean, farming does use damage. Of, use of nitrogen, for example. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we... Yeah, so... Uh, artificial fertilisers... Um, sure. ...change the entire... They change the landscape. Yeah, they do, but it saved millions and billions of people from starvation in the 1960s. You know, the Green Revolution, if we hadn't had the Green Revolution, we wouldn't have Asia as it is today. We'd be having, we'd be using manure a lot more. We'd be having a lot more, arguably, water pollution incidents because we'd have no um, artificial fertilizers. Now, that's not to say the artificial fertilizers are the solution. This is rather like Rachel Carson in her book, Silent Spring. She was an incredible visionary um, environmentalist. She was one of the first environmentalists to kind of pick up on our misuse of new technology. We just discovered in insecticides. We were using them all over the place to produce more food, to knock back uh, insects. But there's a lovely paragraph in Silent Spring written by Rachel Carson. She says, I am not against the use of insecticides. It's the inappropriate use of them. And that really stands out for me. And that's exactly like farming. We can't not farm. We have to farm in order to produce food. But we have to be aware of how we're doing it. And that doesn't then mean that one mode of farming is the right way and the other one isn't. Organic farming is brilliant. But it's only brilliant for certain types of wildlife in certain scenarios. And if you want wildlife that is woodland wildlife you do not want anyone farming near you you want woodland so everyone talks about wildlife and actually even someone some of the environmentalists someone said what what did wildlife what did nature do before humans turned up well there wasn't any farmland wildlife for starters or there would be some but very little. Not the numbers of no. things like turtle doves, which yeah. may be sort of returning. Which have evolved with, with yeah. you know, farming over 5,000 years. And now we see the loss. Having, now, but, but in our lifetimes, you know, when I was growing yeah. up in the 70s, turtle doves were relatively common. 
Absolutely. And now they're, you have to travel a yeah. great distance. But then yeah. I suppose when I was little, red kites were... You'd have to travel miles to see red yeah. kites, and now you can see one every single day if you sure. keep... And they're all imports from Spain and not yeah. the original native Welsh one. But, but um, well, I suppose the ones around here might be... Yeah. Uh, might have been... Uh, might have drifted from, 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 from the deep. Yeah. Sort of. But then we've got to be careful how many feeding stations we put up <laughs> in order. And, yeah, and that's another... That, but that's another... Um, yeah. It, it is, but, but it's, it's also related to loss of wildlife and us well, wanting talk, talk to regain. So we have feeding talk. stations in, in Wales, particularly for two or three of them, for feeding red kites and buzzards and ravens and all sorts of things that come down. You have a... You've expressed some concern about these. <laughs> I mean, when you say concern, I've just maybe highlighted issues which I think sometimes we don't talk enough about. Mm. Uh, issues which... It doesn't mean you're denying the issue. It doesn't mean you're not accepting it. It's just that I think we could talk a lot, a lot more about nature conservation, all the gritty stuff that comes with it, not just the losses, not just the wins, but some of the tensions where, where we want to see more wildlife, but we have to accept that if a red kite... If we start... I mean, we feel... Here comes one of the tensions. Yeah, yeah I like... I like. Oh, the dogs are romping around. Yeah, so yeah, it's a red kite. Cu- I mean, it's quite an interesting subject. These feeding stations because they—they—I've been to a couple. They're a great sort of spectacle, although it doesn't feel particularly wild. But you do get hundred, or well, maybe more than a hundred red kites whirling around, picking up bits of rotting meat off the ground. And well, they're not rotting meat technically. No. Defra has given a certificate that oh. that meat can be used for those birds. Oh, really? Okay. It's, so it's, it's a highly contrived situation. It's just like dogs you know, panting, running around, like, and I've got one of them cowering, not cowering, <laughs> taking shelter under my yeah. lark. Um, so, so would your what would your um, it's a good idea? Cost so, I'm just going to say it's just like you know, you know, kind of feeding the birds. We love feeding the birds. Uh, so, feeding the birds generally, you know. Yeah. I mean, sunflower hearts or lumps of defra approved. Um, <laughs> sirloin steak. <laughs> sirloin steak, yeah. Or, Which, or, quite frankly, should go to me, not them. Yeah. Other, the point, I'm not going to make your point for you, but the point is feed, you're providing extra food. Intervention. Yeah. Intervention. You know. So I've got a So I, we love. Extrapolate that. Intervention means we've got more, bir- more birds, yeah. and with kites, we've got more kites. Yeah. Which got, could have an impact on other. I mean, humans are intervening when, obviously, we're now going to... Well, I'm, I'm just going to say the word... egg and bacon. I'm going to say the word pheasant to you first. So yeah, if, yeah. if we're releasing millions of pheasants into the countryside, doesn't that also have a... Absolutely. No, it does. And, yeah. and, and all of the sheep on these hills, the crows that hang around eating the nutrient-rich sheep droppings, mm. every, look, ever since... Ever since humans, as hunter-gatherers, stopped hunter and gathering and became settled farmers in the Nile Delta, whatever it was, ten or yeah, ten thousand years ago, and in the UK we kind of came into these hills and we knocked back all the kind of bit of vegetation, we cut down the trees, we started to intervene with ecosystems. We, of course, are part of the ecosystem. I remember David Attenborough doing a brilliant little thing when uh, it was I don't know it was on some BBC program. And he said, hang on, we, we've, we've, we've always intervened, you know, and I think someone was trying to say, well, we're not part of nature. He said, yes, we are part of nature. We're part of the... Of course we are. Yeah, right, how are you going to eat this, Fergus? I've yeah. got a nice runny egg and a bit of brown. Okay, but it could, and it doesn't matter where it goes. Yeah, the it egg banjo. Be. 
And this is coming back to food. You know, mm. we, we interface. Excuse me talking with my mouth. Mm. Delicious bit of bacon. Very good, yeah. Now, was it? Thank I'm you. not sure. Was it imported from Denmark or was it produced, hopefully, within a British farm? There's another discussion. Animal welfare, wildlife conservation. Mm. But I've distracted myself. Sorry. We're... We could read the packet. <laughs> You're right. Ah, British. So we are British smoked bacon. Yeah. Um, Coming back to wilder farming, and mm. I quite. There's, this is a great place to talk about because we're sitting in the Black Mountains, where I know you've had debates with local farmers, and there is. Is there a bit of? Now, the word rewilding we'll come back maybe we'll come back to we'll just use it for now rewilding in the, in the Black Mountains is there, is there anything happening? it's been wilding itself the Black Mountains have been wilding themselves for the last 80 years and you can see it on the you can see it on the hill slopes hill slopes on the slopes of the hills yeah even. you can see the scrub actually rising up the slopes yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's slow, just naturally but it, you know after the war, these hills... I mean, that's, what was that, kind of 70 years ago? These hills would have looked very different. Well, how would it, how would it have looked different? Well, there'd be, yes, there was more livestock, and, of course, the Ministry of Agriculture or the Ministry of War was saying, you will plough some of these steep slopes and put potatoes on them because we must be self-sufficient. I met a farmer the other day, um, and he said, my dad died on the slopes of the sugarloaf because in 1964 he was being instructed he was a contractor plowing and it got wet and the tractor turned over and he died so i'm being a bit emotive there but i suppose what i'm saying is that yeah these hills since those days of the post-war years when there was more emphasis to produce as much food as possible from all the marginal steep land those days have gone and these hills reclaim themselves remarkably quickly. They've rewilded themselves. Oh, um, so so you'd, you'd say they're already oh yeah, along this the is, process. Oh, yeah. Them. Very, I mean, just, just, just looking around, you know, looking at the huge swathes of bracken, which is, causes great emotion with those people who, in a way, have said, you know, that is taking valuable grazing land. And... It is in certain places, but it's only a, a natural progression when the sheep have, you know, withdrawn to other areas and so they, you know, they kind of graze existing grass and so the bracken then gets taller. And it's just part of succession. And then you get the birch and the rowan, uh, which will start to just pop up from between the bracken and the forest and the hawthorn as well. But it takes, it will take generations. And we're a little bit impatient, I think, in the UK. We want to see as much tree planting done as quickly as possible. I suppose we want to see change in our lifetime because yeah. we, we, don't, we don't see what happens next. So there's a sort of sure. understandable... But, it, it, but we don't have that mentality of perhaps Victorian, Georgian, you know, planting trees for grandchildren. Well, we do, but we don't. But we also want to see it happen in our lifetimes. Because we're... Yeah, I mean, we're impatient, but don't forget the Victorians weren't very good either because they said, oh, look at that bird. I think I'll shoot it so I can take it back and pin it to my wall. Yeah, it's and, the last and, one. And, uh, yeah, uh, all, yeah, all our museums are based on wonderful Victorian kind of yeah. collectors. But I think we should cut loose a bit and maybe we do talk about kind of tree planting because across in that valley on the Black Mountains, you can so see... So we're looking north here towards... Um, yeah. Kind of Talgarth and you know, yeah, Hayes, so, way over the top. So what we've got there. are just folded peaks and, and some wooded deep, valleys. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but some deep conifer forest. Now, yeah. 
conifer forest. This is the Griny Vower Reservoir yeah. up here. So there's the Griny Vower River or stream. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that is quite heavily forested. I mean, in fact, yeah. there's, uh, and that, that tall peak in the distance is wine, wine, wine back. Well, wine. so Weinbach is just beyond that. Okay. that. I can't remember the name of that. Oh, peak. is that Bal? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Penny something. Oh, yeah. I, I obviously should know, but maybe the, I. They, they, the peaks come very rapidly on, in the Black Mountains, and, mm. and some of them are hard to define from each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in that particular valley, you know, 80 years ago, the Forestry Commission. There's hundreds of acres of forestry up there, aren't there? Yeah, so they requisitioned. You know, they almost did compulsory purchase and said, you know, to the whole farmers, you know, here's a lot of money, we need to plant more forestry. Again, this is post-war. So last year the Forestry Commission was 100 years old. Um, um, and it was all to do with self-sufficiency after the, you know, use of pit props, we'd cut down all our woods after the wars. We felt, rather than just relying on imports, we should plant stuff here. And, of course... If you plant oak, it takes 200 years. If you plant sickle spruce, it takes 30 years. It's different wood, but it served its purpose to provide yeah. more timber produce. And yet in the Napoleonic Wars, they planted oak woodlands for the ships mm. with no expectation that they would be used in the same war. Yeah, wow. Uh, I find that kind of... You know, the New Forest, a lot of that is, is oak planted. Or so the stories go. Mm. Mm. But obviously... Here you can plant Sitka spruce and larch and crop it well, a couple of times in your in your own lifetime. Yeah, yeah. But we're rather adverse to non-natives uh, kind of trees. Yeah, non-native trees and and um, that, you know a, co- a conifer woodland. We saw that we saw those crossbills earlier, which is a mm. benefit of conifer woodland. But walking through conifer woodlands has its own atmosphere, has its own beauty, but it's. All depends what age. Feels feels dead, and also how close yeah. you plant it. Sure, yeah, but then if you walk through a beech woodland in the middle of winter, it's pretty lifeless. Now, of course, there's going to be more insect life at certain times of the year, but then there's 247 types of fungus which are totally reliant on Sitka spruce. Mm. But we don't really find fungus that attractive. We find, you know, bird life and red squirrels. Hang on. Red squirrels, they prefer conifer forest to broadleaf forest. So, it, again, this is about human choices. What, what do we want? What do we want for the purposes of, you know, planting trees? Is it for our own, our own kind of valediction of what would landscape to look like? Or is it for future generations, as you say, Fergus, to kind of bind up the carbon? Um, I, I'm not going to, you know... A lot of people say, Rob, you know, be more kind of definite in what you want but it's actually so you know there's so many different land uses within this same landscape we're looking at we're looking at sheep farming we're looking at historical um, kind of crash shooting we're looking at forestry we're looking at sheep farming we're looking at upland cattle which have since disappeared for all kinds of reasons whether that's to do with kind of badgers and um, or, or um for mouth as well for, yeah we had a big impact on cattle in the uplands it did um, and, and they never came back. Exactly the economics, the, you know, the economics, and 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 again, this is this is back can, to regulation because they can break up the bracken. They're, they're brilliant. Sheep. They are almost like kind of keystone species in that they can break it up with their hooves. They can eat it. But this comes back to regulation. We have very strict regulation about kind of tagging cattle, and you've got to keep them healthy, and you've got to. You know, you've got to play things by the book, and that increases costs. And 
us. And I think sometimes we overregulate against what could be more interesting integrated land uses. So rewilding, um, lots of people object to that term, rewilding. Oh, I think, yeah, I mean, it's a bit like genetic modification. Yeah, but wait a minute, I mean, th- this is... So conservationists like it, farmers dislike it. I'm generalising here because there are plenty of farmers who are buying into the kind of rewilding ideas. But from my experience of talking to farmers and being at farming conferences, the word we are rewilding is a real wind-up. Yeah, but I mean, this is back to the semantics. When, you know, when, when the phrase genetic modification came out, people then started, started talking about kind of franken food. I mean, it's exactly the same here. You know, farmers, land managers, can we widen this a little bit to land managers have just, you know, done, have enabled a rewilding to occur, you know, the wilder landscapes. Uh, in the Black Mountains especially... I think. So, so people sorry, are talking I'm, about. People are I'm talking just about being distracted. Well, I'm, raven, being, yeah. I'm being distracted by the raven and its full gullet. You can see its throat stuffed full of probably prime Welsh lamb. As it kind of. Do you think it's found a dead one up there? Well, or, or yes, because this is a rewilded landscape, so things die all the mm. time, and that, and that brings for me, you know, I mean the terminology. And I remember being interviewed, I think, for Farming Today, and I said, I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of defining rewilding because it's, it's become, actually, recently on social media, I mentioned it. Uh, and, of course, then people jump in and say, well, you can't mention it because you're not actually talking about the pure form of it. And, 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 well, and there, 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 there's levels of purity which uh, exactly, can be which very just, frustrating. Yeah, so. exactly. So I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm in a way... I'm not but that's gonna... that fetishization of... Um, of a golden period where everything can be rewound to. And so we, not... we can't cope with things like wolves roaming or the idea of wolves roaming, but Belgium can because they can roam naturally. Over yeah, the they can come from Germany, them. Italy. It's, it's, it's one great interconnected area. Um, and, and you're going to have a natural progression. If you let go, if you take your hands off, uh, you know, if, if you stand back, vroomf, nature comes back really quick, whether it's you know, the bracken here in the Black Mountains and the trees going up the slopes or whether it's the wolves moving through Europe. Uh, it's not without its conflict. But so you're quite optimistic about nature re- oh, I'm, coming I am. back. Yes, yeah. I, but where I will, I think, split the difference is that I think us as a society in Britain are not ready maybe for the tooth and claw stuff. I mentioned, you know, the insect that fell onto someone's lap. It's on the front of the Daily Mail and, you know, it was a wood wasp. I just think we are not ready. I think we need to do a bit more of a journey and we could, you know, I would argue the British government would say, okay, let's, let's make part of the curriculum is that you spend two weeks living in a hut in northern Italy amongst wolves and farmers and conservationists and you get a taste of what the reality is like Mm -hmm. and then that would be part of the curriculum you know be your countryside code let's just seek to understand we need to be rewilded ourselves before we rewild our land absolutely and I think we're trying to make the jump a bit too quick I think we personally you see I'm a bit of a hunter naturalist you know I, I would love to live up up in the kind of Canadian backwoods with a, you know, a rifle, pair of binoculars, a fishing rod, a little hut. OK, my family might not want to come and visit me that often. Um, and, and, you know, you really are living at the kind of frontier of nature and humans. But, you know, I also accept that that, that kind of, um, that kind of Walden-esque, that kind of um, Aldo Leopold, yeah. you know, 
who was that American yeah. conservationist so hunter? Thoreau and yeah, exactly. Um, it, 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 you can't translate it to 67. You know, we're highly, and I'm talking about the UK. We are a highly urbanised nation. Now, there's nothing wrong with being urbanised, but I think what it does, it causes these shortcuts into this utopia of wildlife rich. I don't like the expression because I enjoy reading science papers. I really hate it, and I will use the word hate, when the media says we are one of the most nature-depleted nations in the world. You actually then have to look at that. Where did that expression come from? It came from a tiny research paper within the state of nature in 2019 relating to African states, Namibia, Botswana. And it, it became... So we're compa- you're saying it the comparison is, is ridiculous. It is ridiculous yeah. because... But, but there's know, no denying in, that... Um, I mean, yep. you may try, but there's no denying that there has been a colossal... I mean, that's... Yeah, absolutely, because we've got 67 million rather hungry but I th- I think, yeah. people, whereas Nibibia has 2 million people on the, on the, take, on the bread line. I, I take the point about we've got a, a, a dense, urban, hungry population, um, but also there are lots of elements that feed into that. And the word feed, we are incredibly wasteful in the way we... Produce All developed countries have become extremely wasteful because the more money we have, the more we waste. We but, waste but everywhere in the food chain. There's waste. Yeah, uh, and and the consumer is as no, but argue, as... but yes, but there was an recent, the very recent thing with the wrap. Uh, you know, the kind of waste people, and it's. Uh, I'm afraid most of the waste. Funny enough, the retail business, whether you like supermarkets or not, they've been really working hard on the waste. A lot of waste still, I'm afraid, is at the householder. Yeah, that's level. what I, that's, that's yeah. the, the okay. consumer. Yeah, oh, I, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so, I, so, I thought so we, you were saying... We, we I mean, are, we're individuals have a responsibility as much as, you know, um, it, it's tragic to see supermarkets throwing out good food. Yeah, but, that, but we throw most of it away. Yeah, yeah, I mean, sell by dates. And that's back to regulation. We have so many, we have such a high food standard. We've got such high food standard uh, safety that we put labels on food that people read and go, right, I'm chucking that yogurt out. You know, and, and the food yeah. waste, apparently during lockdown, it's horrific. Everyone said, oh, we're wonderful. We're buying local food and we're really kind of connecting with our food, was, which, and I yeah. agree. But the food waste is apparently because of the hoarding. And then people say, right, I can't eat that. And they've just... But I think also it, maybe we need some labelling on that how many acres of land, how much effort, how, many, how much energy went into producing those rashes of bacon, for example. Or, or, um... Yeah, I mean, I mean labelling is, is, is a really big issue, whether you label it for, uh, say, climate change, carbon footprint. They tried carbon footprint labelling, I think, about 10, 15 years ago, but the consumer just didn't want it. I even thought of an idea of, you know, dead skylarks as a label. But by God, that's a pretty aggressive thing to do. When like, you... Then it becomes like smoking, where you have some yeah. rot, some yeah. sort of cancerous yeah. lungs. On yeah, but, you know, there are some people saying that, we should, you know, there should be a sugar tax, a meat tax. Mm. You know, it's the same kind of thing. It's quite a regressive way of... Well, I don't know how you change yeah. people's behaviour. I'm not well, suggest- this is suggesting punitive measures, but I think there's got to be a... Well, lots of people are. Yeah, undoubtedly. No, but I agree with you. I think yeah. we have to nudge. I'm probably quite a nudge person. We have to somehow nudge our, well, our consumptive you know, yeah, behaviours. Because many people who are calling for wilder, more nature, you know, more wildlife, less intensive farming, could easily be the same people who might be filling up their food waste bins 
and yeah, um, I mean, I'm not going to judge that. But when people say less intensive farming, let's have more extensive farming. I say, hang on, I'm not sure why I want more extensive farming. That means you're going to take that hillside and try and grow food on it. No, I'd rather us try and reduce our consumption. I mean, if I was to boil that down, you're sort of saying the best thing you could do for your countryside and your farmer and your wildlife is to really look at your diet and your shopping habits. Absolutely. I, I, I think I, I may have banged on about that. And actually, I... <laughs> but better than, than sort of lobbying, better yes. than... than so it's Personal you know, responsibility. Come on. I mean, we, we have to... We've got to face some of that. We, OK, we've had... You know, this whole COVID thing has maybe exacerbated, you know, the government giving guidance and personal responsibility and common sense... And I'm not going to be someone who's going to lord it over and say, well, you know, it's up to you and use common sense. But there is no doubt that our consumption, uh, our personal consumption of food and also emissions from transport and how we live our lifestyle, etc., etc. You know, the energy use from our internet, from our laptops, from our mobile phones, we don't really want to... It's a bit of a smoking gun. We don't really want to think about it, but it's huge. There are some huge energy... Our footprint, we must look individually at our own footprints and try and reduce it before we start to wave fingers at, you know, other land, you know, other, other, other users' personal lifestyle. So I mean, there is a wormhole that we can give them a distant cause of buzzards there yeah, out in the wild. Over the, presumably they've got young... Nothing more irritating, I think, than a young buzzard calling its parents. <laughs> mewling. <laughs> yeah. Or kind of mewling. Yes. Mewling, constant, mewling. all yes. day long. And you, you know that it's just uh, it's all hungry and on and on and on. I find chaffinches can pal a bit sometimes on those hot summer's days where they just go, yeep, 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 yeep. OK, so, yes, I've got a red star, which is nested for the second time, uh, i.e. kind of second brood. Uh, and it's lovely, but it tells you off continually. There's this... And you kind of slightly feel victimised. It's saying, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> and I, t- I tell you what I love is that I cut some old kind of tree boughs and they had holes in them and I just left them wedged in the trees and the red starts nested in those. Fantastic. You know, I, I think the resilience... Back to the word resilience. Yeah, nature has a lot more resilience. I think we're the slightly weak, febile... Well... Sorry, yeah. feeble and febrile. Let's look at those, uh, so those ravens there, just sort of sp- one spinning upside down and doing it. Sort yeah, of you know, dance. celebrating, celebrating the fact that once humans disappear, nature will have this back again. Yes, I remember Roger Deakin saying, "Oh, the, elf, the elms will, the elves, the elms will, will outlast <laughs> us in the end." Yeah, 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 it will, and everyone kind of you know fears for the world. The earth, the world's fine. Yeah. It's us humans who are the vulnerable ones. So what would you like to see, Rob, in, um, if you were George Eustace, the DEFRA minister, and you had a bit of... Hang on, we're in Wales. Come on, okay. we can't, we can't right. go into England. I think we've just <laughs> got to keep <laughs> it to know. Okay. If, if you were the government minister yeah. for the environment and food and forestry and land use, uh, what would I want? I'd, I'd, I'd want more of a kind of national conversation about some of the complexities... And I, and I don't want to kind of, you know, reside in the word complexity and say, well, because it's complex, we can't talk about it or it's, you know, it can't be simplified. I think we can simplify our ability to try and communicate in a, in a, in a more intelligent way to pick up and to tolerate lots of different land uses. And then 
quite often it's not the land use, it's the land management that is the issue. And um, I'm slightly, I'm rather fascinated. I've never seen the kind of ravens acting like that. They're coming closer and closer and lower and lower as though they're going to pick us off. Yeah. Knowing that we've eaten the bacon, they want the bacon inside us. And they think we're not going to make it back to civilization. No, exactly, exactly. This is a one-way ticket. Um, and I, I, you know, if I was, you know, the policymaker, I, I'd want to utilize science, but not in a kind of base, not to base everything on the evidence, but to be informed by lots of different strands. It's back to this word heterogeneity, you know, lots of different kind of diverse, pulling lots of different Cause, um, cause yeah, land. You've often talked about the value of anecdote. Um, mm, by that I yeah. mean it's, it's, you know, so on the one hand you can have peer-reviewed science of how ecosystems work, but then you can have a farmer's view, having worked the land for 80 years. I feel very strongly about that. Look, a lot of our great nature reserves or designated wildlife places were hunting forests hundreds of years ago. So the same premise now is that um, we can... But, you know, the, you know, the anecdotal, the kind of, you know, the land manager who sometimes we castigate, we say, oh, that's a farmer, that's a gamekeeper, oh, he can't be right, you know, they're not science-based. Hang on, part of the, you know, the Black Mountains is all an SSSI, you know, site of special scientific interest, and that's probably because of grouse shooting 150 years ago, it's because of farming 100 years ago, it's because of all this, all these different kind of land use. It doesn't mean they're all right and they must perpetuate. And I think there are some people who may say, well, I farm this land for 350 years and I want to farm it in the same way for the next 350 years. I go, no, 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 hang on. Things, the dynamics are changing faster maybe than they have done beforehand. We've got climate change. We've got lots of other factors which have suddenly dropped into the frame. And so how do we then blame the cultural, you know, cultural heritage is very important, but so is our ability to progress. So uh, you're, you're, I, um, as a lot of the people that you're talking about have retreated into bunkers, and I think that's oh. both conservationists and farmers and other land managers. We've become so binary. We, we have, it's either, you know, if you're not with me, that means you're against me. And I really, I don't like that at all. And that's why I'm probably quite a lonely person out in no man's land seeking common ground. I'm not seeking middle ground. I'm not seeking necessarily compromises, but I'm seeking all of these different, you know, there are all these different valid views across a whole spectrum from, let's say, quite extreme activists to those people who you never hear from at all, who are just as valid. And we need to learn how to sometimes tease out those voices. And I think in this... What sort of voices? I mean, what, examples of those sort of the quiet, unheard voices? Well, I mean, it, 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 could, be, it could be the consumer who, who doesn't get involved with any of these. This would come across as quite an elite, highbrow conversation about land use and conservation and wildlife. And I would argue that there's a lot of voices that might want to say, well, actually, I have an opinion on that, but this seems a bit highbrow for me to enter. It's hard so. to make it relevant, then, to those people, yeah. because it is, yeah. everything is... Yeah, so you could make it relevant within a new GCSE about, you know, about nature and about food and about, you know, modern, you could have a modern lifestyle well, I, kind of GCSE, I, I, I which, which covered... to air, food and water. Yeah, basically. We all need those. And really, essentially, we're just arguing about how we get those in the, in, and when, in the most efficient and least damaging and healthiest way. So there's, yeah. there's quite a lot of it. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, we covered a lot of ground there and yet barely scratched the surface of many of those subjects. Do let me know your thoughts on what Rob and I discussed. Do you agree with what he said? Email me, Fergus Collins. My email is editor at countryfile.com. I always love to read your emails and I may even be able to print them in Countryfile magazine. A huge thank you to Rob and his British Bacon for that entertaining and enlightening discussion. You can read more of Rob's thoughts and essays at his website, robyork.co.uk. And that's York with an E on the end. Join us next week for Halloween and a dark and mysterious adventure into Dorset legend and folklore with storyteller Martin Maudsley. Don't listen to it alone. For now, you've been listening to the BBC Countryfile magazine podcast, produced by Jack Bateman. Thanks for listening and goodbye.